So if you've not heard me teach before, I don't know how many of you have heard me teach before, but my people know this. I definitely use way too many TV shows as sermon illustrations. Pretty much every sermon starts with a TV show. So, I mean, you guys know I like TV, right? I have a Seinfeld. I have the Kramer hanging in our living room. It's the biggest picture in our living room, right, is the Kramer. Um, well, I couldn't think of an illustration for this. You know, I couldn't think of anything to say for this opening, and I was sitting there last night, like I said to Melissa a hundred times yesterday, I have no idea what to do. And then we had dinner, and we watched America's Got Talent. And I was like, oh, this is good. So here we go. You ready for this? Okay, so you guys watch America's Got Talent? Am I the only one that likes this show? I think we've seen every season of this show, right? We've been watching this forever. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, yeah, anyway. Uh, we w- so America's Got Talent. The way this works is it's a talent show, but it's not just a talent show. You have to be talented, and you have to have some sort of a sob story, or you have no chance to get on this, right? And it's always, you know... Um, somebody who's sick or your family member, whatever it is, right? Um, and so uh, it, it drives me nuts because 75% of this show is people telling their sob stories, trying to be, get the most pity so they can get votes, and then 25% is, oh, and by the way, I can also kind of sing, right? And the guys who have the weird talents that I love, you know, the knife jugglers and all those guys, they never win, and it still makes me mad, and I still watch it every year, so I'm the problem, Right? Well, anyway, so it, it drives me nuts, though. People show up with these sob stories, and that's how they think they have to win. But the one, and that, you know, uh, it's infuriating. But the one that makes me real, the ones that make me even more mad are the people who show up, not with a sob story, but bragging about all the good that they do in the world, right? Here's where I volunteer, you know, like, uh, here's where I volunteer in this bad neighborhood, and here's what's going on, and this is why you should vote for me, because... I'm such a good person, right? Like the guy who won last year, I couldn't stand him. He was a magician. You know this guy? Does anybody watch this show? Am I the only one that ever watches this show? Yeah, Drew and Chris, they don't watch TV. They're too busy fasting and praying. Get out of here. (laughs) Baloney. Uh, Yeah, it's the most popular show in the world. I'm the only one that watches it. Sure, right? Anyway, this guy that won last year, he was a magician. And all of his magic tricks were pretty great. Uh, Except I couldn't stand him because, uh, what was he? He was an adoptive parent, right? like me and Melissa. We, you know, we love the adoptive parent world and foster the city and all that stuff. Oh, man, but every, every magic trick was like this whole story about how great I am because I adopted this poor little kid. You know, I felt bad for the kid, right? Like, you've ruined this guy's life, and that's why everybody should vote for him on America's Got Talent. And just every, every uh, performance, the judges were just in tears, you know? And the magic was great, but you're just such a good dude. You know, this, you've taken care of these kids and it's so hard. You know, oh, it drives me bananas, right? Um, because, right, in our culture, what's the point of doing something good if you can't then go on America's Got Talent and tell everybody about it? Or what's the point of doing something good if you can't put it on TikTok? That's one of them, right? Instagram? I don't have, I don't, yeah. We have an Instagram for church and Kayla does it, right? I don't know how all this works, but what's the point of it, right? If you don't get to tell everybody about it. There is a sickness in the human heart. Humanity was created to look at God and go, whoa, cool. And then the fall happened. And in the fall, we rewired our hearts to want everybody to look at us and go, hey, cool. Right? Where we're supposed to be looking at God, we're expecting everybody to do that to us. And so we manipulate situations for attention. Right? We do good things so that people will see And we think that we will ultimately be satisfied in this life by spending as much time as we can as the center of attention. 
right? We've got to be the one that everybody looks at. When the truth is that we'll, we will only ever truly be satisfied with somebody else as the center, with somebody who's worthy to be at the center, at the center of our attention. And so that's sort of the setup here. With that idea that that's how the world works, let's take a look at this passage. We're in uh, Luke chapter 20. So we're going to read uh, two little quick stories here. <laughs> quick, yeah, right, if you've ever heard me preach. All right, here we go. Uh, verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples. Okay, so here at the porch, what we do is we're reading the book of Luke. We just go through verse by verse. So most of you in here are not part of the porch, and you, know, you haven't been doing this with us. So let me just give you a quick recap of what's been going on. So we're towards the end of Jesus's life here. We're in Holy Week. So a couple months ago we read, or weeks ago, whatever it was, we read the story of uh, the triumphal entry, Hosanna in the highest, all that stuff, right? Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Uh, the next day he goes into the temple, and he sees how they had turned the part of the temple that was supposed to be for the Gentiles to worship into like a marketplace to rip people off. And Jesus gets real mad, and he starts flipping tables and screaming at people. You know, you've turned God's house into a house of a den of robbers. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. You know, he's real upset. Then he leaves, comes back next day, he's teaching the people. And he has these massive crowds of people. Jesus is really, really popular. And so he's there and he's teaching. And then a couple weeks ago, what we read was the, the, some representatives from the Sanhedrin, which was like the Jewish ruling council. They showed up and they challenged Jesus's authority. What gives you the right to flip our tables and to teach our people? You're not a trained rabbi. You're not, you know. And so this is an honor-shame culture. So they had, I'm not getting into all this now, but <clears throat> they had what uh, scholars call an honor contest, where it's kind of like the theological, the ancient theological version of a rap battle, right? Where the crowd gets to decide who wins while these two guys are going at it up front, right? And Jesus, this is what we read last week. Jesus just absolutely mops the floor with these turkeys. Should we pay taxes, you know, give to Caesar what's Caesar and God what's God? And then what about the resurrection? This lady had all the, you know, all these husbands and which one, you know, and uh, if you don't know the passage, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But Jesus, you know, again, theologically, he goes back in the Old Testament and he mops the floor with them and then they can't even say anything. And then he asks them a question about Psalm 1101 and they don't know the answer. And it's very clear, right? Jesus, I mean, he, he, he stomped them like Mike Tyson fighting just about anybody back in the day, right? By the way, that's a good YouTube rabbit trail if you ever want to Mike Tyson clips from the 80s. It's pretty fun. That's how Jesus treated these guys. So that's where we pick it up, right? He has just absolutely mopped the floor with these turkeys, theologically speaking, and the crowd is completely on his side. And so here we're told, in the hearing of all the people, he said this to his disciples. So now, have you ever seen somebody be so disrespectful that like they're in one conversation and they're just done with it? And so they just turn and they have another conversation with somebody, almost like this guy is not even here anymore. This is what Jesus does to these scribes and Pharisees and these leaders. He turns now. I'm done talking to you now. Everybody knows I just beat you in this honor contest. So now he doesn't even talk to the crowd. He talks to specifically, he says to his disciples, look what he says, beware of the scribes. Be, so he stops talking to these guys. He turns to these guys and he says, don't be like them. Almost, you know. I'm not talking to you anymore, but I'm telling them to not be like you. Now, who were the scribes? These were like spiritual lawyers. We don't have anything like this quite today because 
you know, back in the day, the, the, their religion and their government, it was all mixed up into one thing, right? So these were powerful people. They were both Pharisees and Sadducees. They were important. They carried a lot of weight. And um, remember, too, this is a culture where a lot of folks couldn't read or didn't have, if they could read, didn't have access to anything, you know, that they could read. They, they didn't have access to the scriptures every day. They couldn't pull out their phones and read the book of Leviticus like you could do on your way home, like you'll probably do on your way home from church today. Um, so this guy, these are the guys, they know Scripture inside and out in a world where that's the highest authority. And so uh, in this really religious society, they're held to a high esteem. They're held to a high honor. And Jesus is warning. He turns and he says, don't be like these guys, right? Even though in our, you know, and Jesus is saying, in a culture, these are the guys that are respected and they're important, but that doesn't mean that they were godly, right? They were the religious leaders, but they weren't godly. And if, you know, you've not been with us in the book of Luke, Jesus has said a lot of really interesting things so far about the kingdom of God. It's not about power, but it's about weakness. It's not about strength, but about helplessness. It's not about insiders, but those on the margins. The kingdom is not about storing up treasure and wealth here and now, but storing up treasure in heaven. It's not about having all the answers and everything figured out. It's about coming to the Lord like a child trusts his parents, and with that kind of trust in God. It's not about impressing God with everything that you've done for him, but it's about being impressed by what he has done for you. The kingdom's not about being served, right? But it's about serving others. It's not about revenge, but forgiveness. The kingdom is not a wage paid, but it's a gift that's been given you. It's not about praise from humans, but it's praise from God. It's not just for certain kinds of people, but the kingdom is for all kinds of weirdos. And, you know, sorry, Joel Osteen, it's not about living your best life now, but about dying to yourself. Jesus has been teaching for a while now about the kingdom of God. And so what is, so when Jesus says, he says, don't be like these scribes. Why? Because they know the scriptures inside and out. Most of them had memorized most of the Old Testament. They know the scriptures, but what do they, they don't understand the kingdom of God. And that's not the kind of people we want to be, right? Uh, So in describing them, don't be like these guys. He elaborates. He gives us six ways that these guys suck. Look at this. Um, uh, First, oh, I didn't highlight this part. Or there's a slide missing. Wait, let me see. Yeah, there's a slide missing. Pretend there's no slide missing. Uh, Number one, he says they like to walk around in long robes. So they like big flowing Oscar dresses, right? Like from the Oscars, right? I think is what this means. No. Um, This is from, let's see, I put this slide in here somewhere. Numbers. Uh, The Lord said to Moses, speak to all the people of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garment throughout uh, their generations and put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and to remember all the commandments of the Lord and to do them not to follow after your own heart or your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. Hey, that's in the Bible. You can't get mad at me. It says whore, right? Okay, so this is what Jesus, uh, this is what the Old Testament tells him to do, right? The point is this. Like, I have a tattoo, right? I think I've told you guys uh, in sermons, right? I have my tattoo. It says James 3.1. Pretend I have muscles. It says James 3.1. <clears throat> James 3.1 says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. That's an important verse for people doing what I am doing right now, standing in my spot right now, teaching the people. I should remember the weight of this. So I got it tattooed. 
So I can write sermons and look down at my arms and go, oh yeah, this is pretty important. I have another tattoo. It's a wedding ring because I, I don't like rings. Let's be honest. This, boy, this hurt like something else though. Boy, oof. don't do this. Okay. <laughs> but I got this wedding ring. And what does a wedding ring remind you of? Right? You look down, you know, and it reminds you of the importance of the vows that you took. I have a third tattoo. It's the Starship Enterprise, and that's there to remind me that Star Trek's better than all the other shows. <laughs> the tassels, that's the point of the tassels, right? You wear this thing on your clothes every day, and what it's supposed to do is it's supposed to remind you, right, of all the Lord's done for you and to follow his commandments. It's like a, it's like a tattoo, right? It's like a specific piece of clothing that these guys were supposed to wear, all the Jewish folks were supposed to wear, uh, to look at constantly and think about God. You look down, you see these tassels, and you go, wow, these things are annoying. I bet they tripped on them. And every time they tripped, they went, oh yeah, I'm supposed to remember to obey God's commandments. Right? And so, these, um, the, the, the scribes that you're not supposed to be like, they love to walk around in their long robes. They loved for everyone to see their, ta- you know, they put, probably had extra long tassels that were really bright and they had them all over, way more than they were supposed to have. They started embellishing them. All right, it's like the guy that goes on a first date and wears a Harvard t-shirt right, to try to impress whatever girl he's taking on this date. Look at I went to Harvard. Oh, look at me. I'm so great. You know, uh, That's what these guys were doing. right? This was their version of the Harvard t-shirt. Okay, so uh, second. So first is they like to walk around the long robes. The second is they love the greetings in the marketplaces. Now, the marketplace was not like... Um, it's not like the mall, right? When you see marketplace, you think of the mall. Oh, for all you youngsters, the mall was like Amazon, but you had to go there, right? Uh, it's not like the mall. Um, it, it did have shops and that sort of thing, but it was like a public space for discussion. Um, like in the book of Acts, um, it, they had like the judges would hang out at the, uh, you know, the marketplace, and they, that's where the court was. It's kind of like a civic center, You're like the center of town, right? In, um, in Athens, Paul was debating the philosophers, right, in the marketplace. Um, in Philippi, that's where his trial was, where, um, you know, him and Silas were beaten. So it's like, this was like the center of town, right, the <clears throat> where everybody important hung out. <clears throat> Sorry, and it says that these scribes, they love the greetings in the marketplaces, right? This isn't just hello. As spiritual leaders, they demanded to be addressed as such. You call me rabbi, you know what I mean? I knew a pastor who wouldn't let people call him his first name, right? It wasn't just Chris. It was Pastor Chris. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> different Chris, different Chris. No, yeah, he wouldn't. It was like, you know, uh, uh, it's Pastor John. Like, he would correct people. Like, yeah, he's, have you read this part yet, guy? Like, maybe he hasn't gotten there in seminary or whatever. It's pretty important. Or it's like the guy, you know, thank you, Mr. Thompson. You know, you're at the airport, and she hands him the thing. Oh, Dr. Thompson. Right? This is what they, they needed. They need that affirmation. They need people to know, yeah, I went to medical school. So they love that. They love the best seats in the synagogues. So synagogues were like, you know, the ancient, a lot of what we do in Sunday service is modeled after the way these synagogues worked, right? They, they would sit together and they would read the scriptures and somebody would explain it. And, um, uh, you know, a lot of these synagogue buildings were pretty elaborate, especially in Jerusalem. They had some pretty fancy synagogue buildings. And so these guys, they needed the best seats. You know what's really funny? Our culture, we've done the opposite. Nobody ever sits up front. The only reason you guys are up front now is because there wasn't another row in the back, right? <clears throat> That's me. I always go sit in the back of every church I go to, too, right? But in this culture, they, the closer you were sitting up front in this honor-shame culture, the more important you were. 
And everybody knew, oh, that guy is sitting up front. Um, the church that I grew up in, where First Pres meets in the evenings, that church, Dolores Park Church, um, I grew up in that church. And when I was a kid, they don't do this anymore. Uh, it's been, this was the 80s, right? Uh, they had three thrones on the stage. And they had, vel- you, you, have you ever been in that, anybody here that goes to First Pres, have you ever been in that room up above the balcony where they have like the little DPC museum? They have the thrones in there. They're still there. I saw them, you know, when I worked there. Anyway, the big throne, there was the tall one, was for the senior pastor. And it was bigger than the two little ones that the assistant pastors had to sit in. And I remember when I was a kid, I thought, boy, assistant pastor might be the worst job in the world because he has to sit up front the whole sermon and everybody can watch him and he has to pay attention. He doesn't get to color and draw and screw around like I used to do, right? But that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. You need the best seats. You need your throne in the synagogue so that, you know, everybody will know how important you are. Like another illustration I thought of just this, the way church has gotten this wrong is back in the day, like I think during some of the Puritan times and stuff, um, you had to buy season tickets to church. You know about this? Like you had to go and you had to buy tickets for your pew and nobody else was allowed to sit in your pew. And so the front of the church was like the paid congregation. And then there was like a little fence, like in a courtroom in the back. And if you didn't pay, you had to like standing room only, like at the Giants game, right? You had to sit in the back, right? We need the best seats so that everybody knows we're important. But it's not just uh, the synagogues, right? Um, They need the best seats and the places of honor at feasts. So again, this honor-shame culture. Um, It's the exact same idea, but instead of at church, this is that small group for dinner. Now, in James 2, and I think we put that in the U version thing. I don't have the slide for it here, but Jesus' little brother wrote this amazing book. And in that book, he talks about how you shouldn't treat people different because they're at the top of society. And you shouldn't treat people worse because they're at the bottom of society. And he's expanding on Jesus' ideas that are taught, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, that sort of thing. Um, But if you think about it, it's bad enough to do that to say, you know, you're more important because you're at the top of society. It's even worse to say I'm more important because I'm at the top of society, right? This is what they were doing, and uh, Jesus is condemning it here, right? They're, I need to be sitting up front so that everybody knows I'm more important than the people sitting behind me. And so we've seen here just in these first couple, right? They're demanding honor in the marketplaces, <clears throat> which was like the, the center of commercial public life. They're demanding honor in the synagogue, which is like the center of religious life. And they're demanding honor at dinner in the homes, which was the center of family, community life. So basically, these guys say, everywhere I go, I need to be the most important. In every part of our society, that's important. (coughs) Sorry, frog in my throat. (coughs) This will be fun to do the song right after. And so, (coughs) in demanding this respect, they're being pretty awful, but Jesus continues. He piles on. They're not just demanding respect. Look what else they do. They devour widows' houses. Now, widows, again, Jesus here sounds like an Old Testament prophet. He's got that Old Testament prophet in him. If I had more time, I would go through a list of about 200,000 verses from the Old Testament that sounds exactly like this, where the Old Testament prophets were yelling at the leaders of the people of God for doing just this, oppressing the people at the bottom of society. And in this culture, widows were at the bottom of society, especially widows who never had kids, grew up without a sort of a safety net. There's no social safety net in this culture. And so these widows, most of them didn't have a way to take care of themselves. And so this is why when we open up the book of Acts, the first 
sort of program that the church gets going is a way to take care of the widows in the church who don't have food and stuff. And there's a distribution of food. You know, this is a very vulnerable group of people in this culture. And Jesus says that these scribes devour widows' houses. That's very strong language, right? It's a perfect translation of this Greek word here. It's a, you know, uh, he doesn't say they rob the widows. He says they devour their houses. If you want to see what it looks like to devour something, you're invited to come watch me eat a pizza at Tommaso's. Uh, around the corner, where's Tommaso's? That way. You know, it's like, it's so good. You just, you wolf it. That's the only time I ever ate a whole pizza, by the way, was at Tommaso's, right? That's what they're doing to these widows. So what's going on here? Well, there's a couple scholars debate. I'm going to give you the options and then let you decide. They all make sense, right? The first is that some of these scribes were teaching about tithing and they were adding on to what was in the Old Testament to a point where these widows couldn't afford to do it. They couldn't afford to follow the rules these scribes were laying down and pay their bills. This is like what TV preachers do nowadays, right? Like, I, you know, what, uh, what was her name? Tammy, ba- yeah, and you know, there was like that movie about her recently. And, you know, they, they prey on some of these older vulnerable women who sit at home, you know, give me all of your money and then God will bless you more. You know, but she already can't pay her bills, right? So that's one option. <clears throat> Another option is that like when the husband died, they needed... Uh, you know, in this culture, they needed a man to handle the estate and take care of that sort of stuff. And these scribes were the people that you would, like the lawyers, you would have to hire to do that. And in that, they would cheat and they would take a bunch of it for themselves. The third option is they would take care, advantage of the culture of hospitality, right? They would show up and eat all your food and take all your stuff and then leave, you know? And in this culture of hospitality, you didn't turn people away and especially important people. And then the fourth option is they did sort of a, let me teach you and your family, and I'll tutor you, you know, or something like that. Let me teach you the, the scriptures. Oh, that's great. The scribe wants to teach us the scriptures. He comes over, he starts teaching, you know, and then at the end of the sermon, imagine if this, I handed out a bill, right? All right, everybody, Venmo John, he just taught this thing. It's $200 a piece, you know? That's kind of, that. so any of those four options make sense. These guys probably did all four of those things. <clears throat> Whatever the option, <clears throat> sorry. Whatever the way that they were doing this was, the the idea is the same. They're powerful men taking advantage of vulnerable women. And so they demand honor they don't deserve. They're robbing people. They rob and abuse these widows. And the last one is, and their religion is fraudulent. And for a pretense, right, they make long prayers. The real purpose of prayer, you know, this this verse here could be a whole book, a whole sermon series. We're going to spend our lives thinking about what prayer really is. But at its core, Christianity, right, following God is about uh, union with God, about being connected to God. And prayer is not just, you know, making wishes like with a genie or fulfilling a duty, right? Prayer is about interacting with the Father who has adopted you into His family. It's about pouring out your life to Him, letting Him change you, letting Him fill you with the Holy Spirit. And the purpose of these prayers that these guys are offering is very different. Imagine for a second that a couple sits down for couples counseling, and the counselor says, you know, why don't you guys tell me why you're here, right? And so the wife starts, okay, let me tell you about our marriage. We never talk. We don't eat together. He's not even usually home. He's out with his friends. We sleep in separate bedrooms. And then we go to church on Sunday because he grew up as a pastor's kid. And all of a sudden, everything is peachy keen. Do people still say that? We'll pretend they do. Everything is peachy keen. 
right? He pretends like we have this fantastic marriage and he sits next to me in church and he puts his arm around me and he rubs my back and, you know, he holds my hand at church. And then we get in the car and we drive home and it's like we don't even know each other. That's what's going on with these clowns in their prayer. Their religion is all for show. There's no private prayer life. There's no intimacy with the Father. There's no love and trust and joy. But they are really good at praying during the synagogue services. You know that guy that prays at church? You're like, wow, that guy knows how to pray? And then you go, boy, I think I suck at this, you know? Right, that's these guys. They're really good at it. They know all the language and all, you know, they have the big, they put on the whole show, you know, the whole spectacle of it. And Jesus says, I don't care about that. Don't be like these guys, right? He goes, because, this is why you shouldn't be like them. They will receive a greater condemnation. Right, again, we don't have a time to get into a whole survey of the Old Testament, but uh, Jesus here is sounding a lot like these Old Testament prophecies, prophets, right? He's echoing that here. They've figured out, you think, these scribes, right? They've figured out the system. You think you've made your life better at the expense of everybody else by snubbing the Word of God. You think your life is, you know, you're content and worry-free, and Jesus says, no, right? What's coming for you is awful. You are going to face a greater condemnation. The warnings here of Jesus are very harsh. Why? Because it's a huge deal It's a huge responsibility to be a leader in the people of God. And these guys are taking that and they're abusing it. They're they're using it all for themselves. It's like the politicians who pass laws to benefit just themselves at the exclusion of everybody else. Like, this is what they're doing with the people of God. And God is not playing around. God will not be mocked. He says, you are going to receive a greater condemnation wow, this is a depressing sermon, right? Thanks for choosing this for the joint service, John. (laughs) Hey, it's not my fault. It's what's next. Um, Well, I know this is kind of a bummer, but I do have good news. I just saved a bunch of money on my car insurance by... No, I'm just kidding. Um, That's a great joke. I used to do that every week during when I was a youth pastor. I would say at the end of every sermon, but I do have good news. And they would all roll their eyes at me. Anyway, no, there is actually good news. This is not the end of the text, right? There's another character here. There's another story, and we're supposed to compare and contrast them. Jesus looked up. He saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, right? The offering box. Hey, what happened to it? Well, like, did somebody come and snatch the offering box? I thought it was on the corner. Anyway, the offering box that apparently is still there. I just can't see it. Um, So Jesus has talked a lot about money in the book of Luke. Um, And one of the things that he said about money is that it's, he says, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into heaven. And at one point he tells a guy, you know, sell everything you have and give the money to the poor and then follow me. He's been pretty harsh on rich people. Here, he's not really harsh on the rich folks. He doesn't really comment on why they're doing what they're doing. He just sort of notices. There's a lot of rich people, and they're going, and they're putting their gifts into the offering box. Now, remember, this was the Passover week. So there are, depending on estimates, somewhere between a couple hundred thousand and maybe a million or two million extra people in this small little city of Jerusalem, right? Like this, Jerusalem's like the size of North Beach, you know, like this little corner of San Francisco. Imagine if there was an extra million people here for a week. There's a lot of people sleeping outside, sleeping, <clears throat> sleeping kind of all over the place, and they're the pilgrims, and they're all there. And you can imagine that there are a lot of people who saved up money all year, 
to bring their money to the temple and to put it into these offering boxes. Now, have you ever been to like, where is it? Are they at Walmart or Kmart, those things that I love with the quarters? You guys know? You guys know what I'm talking about? Okay, so it's like this big bowl kind of thing, and you put your quarter in the top, and it spins, and it spins, and it spirals, and it goes, and it falls down the middle. And then I turn to Melissa, and I say, give me another one. (laughs) And, you know, and then I have for about 20 minutes, she says, come on, dude, let's go. You know, I love those things. Uh, This is kind of what these offering boxes were like. They had these, there were, uh, I wrote it down, there were 13 of these throughout the temple complex, which the temple complex was like this big space. The temple building was in the middle of the complex, but uh, it was this whole big space. And there were 13 of these collection boxes. And what they were was, it was like a box, and like in the wall, I think, and they had these big trumpet kind of things, like brass trumpets that came out of the wall. And it opened up. And what you were supposed to do is take your money and put it into the trumpet. And the more money that you put in, the louder it was. Right? These things like kind of you know, uh, projected the noise so that everybody could hear. And it would be kind of like if we did an offering at church and we passed the plate and the usher went around and was like, oh, hey, look at that. John and Kayla gave 500 bucks and then he puts it, says it to everybody at church. <laughs> right? And he goes, oh, look at that. Dennis only gave 50 bucks <laughs> and then put it in. This is basically how, what it was like. Everybody could hear how much money, how much of these coins you were throwing into the temple. Um, and so Jesus is there, and he's just won his theological rap battle against these scribes, and the crowd is loving him, and he's kind of on, the, you know, things are going well, and he's teaching, and, you know, he's kind of in the zone, right? He's in the teaching zone. And all of a sudden, there's a loud noise that rattles him off of his, his little diatribe here about the scribes. It's like we sit here with the, the door open, and every other week, probably, because we're right next to the police station, when a, a cops drive by with the sirens blaring, or the fire station's just down, the fire truck goes by, and, the, and I lose my train of thought. I think that's kind of what happens with Jesus here. He, all of a sudden, there's this very, somebody put a lot of money into that trumpet thing, and probably made a pretty big show of it, and everybody listening to him turned and looked, and was like, whoa, that guy just put a lot of money into that trumpet thingy. Everybody's impressed, except for Jesus. And then... He saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. This this poor widow here, I think, is the glue between these two passages. We just read about the scribes abusing and robbing these widows. And now here we are, we have one of these widows, and she's poor. These are the people, these are the victims from the last passage. And you can picture it. I have absolutely no evidence to back this up at all, but I imagine that there was a line of people waiting to put their money into that trumpet. There's a million extra people in town, right? Person after person comes up to the trumpet and dumps in large sums of money. And that trumpet is making a lot of noise. And I bet people purposely got a lot of extra coins. You know, it's like when somebody takes a 20 and gets a bunch of singles and then puts it in a wallet clip so you think they have a lot of money, but it's just 20 bucks. Right, I bet they did that. They changed it out. They had a lot of money and they're putting it in so it can make more noise. And then it's the widow's turn. She shyly walks up to the trumpet. She doesn't have a box filled with coins. She doesn't even have a bag filled with coins. She has tears in her eyes and seemingly nothing in her hands. She's not really holding anything. She approaches the trumpet, and she's mumbling a prayer to herself. She reaches out, and she opens up her hand. She looks at it, and there's two very small coins in it. So she takes one coin, 
She looks at it, and she throws it in the trumpet. Ting. That's the only sound it makes. Slides down. She looks at the other coin, almost as if she's tempted to keep it, trying to decide what to do. And she smiles. She picks it up. She throws it in. Ting. Turns and walks away. Nothing compared to the people in front of her and behind her, dumping their coins like at that coin star thing at Safeway. You know, it's really loud. She walks away, and then the rich people in line, they keep going. She has no idea that Jesus is watching her from across the courtyard. But here's what she did know. She knew that God was watching her from heaven. She didn't know Jesus was there watching, but she knew God was watching. And when she dropped those two coins into that trumpet, she was worshiping God the Father. And what she gave wasn't much, right? Two small copper coins. The scholars kind of tell us this coin was called a leptin. It was the smallest coin. It was like their version of a penny. It was the smallest coin they had, right? Estimates vary, but most people say like it was, I don't know, one or two percent of a day's wage, right? It's like a dollar or two is what she drops in here. Not really that impressive, but it was to Jesus. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Right? <clears throat> they gave from their wealth. Notice Jesus doesn't really say that's a bad thing. Like, he, he, he's harsh on rich people, kind of in other parts of Luke, but here he's not really. He says, look, he doesn't say what they did was wrong. Yeah, they gave from their wealth. They, you know, they're donating, they're doing whatever. That's fine. But he... He says, she put in more, right? She, she gave from her poverty. She, she was poor. She was a widow. She didn't have a lot of money in this society without any sort of a social safety net. And look what else he says. Uh, let's see, where is it? Uh, she put in all that she had to live on. She gave everything that she had. That's an easy detail to skim over, but she gave it all. She had two coins in the whole world, and she put both of them in there. After she walked away from that trumpet, she had no way to get food, money, like, or no way to get food, clothing, shelter, you know, whatever. Reading this, we, can't, we couldn't blame her, right, if she had kept both coins. If somebody came into church and came up to me and said, hey, my, I've had a rough time. My bank account's like $200 under, but I do have $2 in cash. Can I put this in the offering box? Let's be honest. I'd be like, no. Keep your two, I don't want your two, I don't want your last two dollars is probably what we would think. Nobody would blame her. Or what if she only put in one coin? That's still tithing 50%, 40% more than what the Old Testament told her to, like these regulations told her to do. Do you see what this says about the heart of this woman, this widow? She trusted her father. She loved her father. Yahweh, God was her God, not money. Money wasn't her God. Now, most passages, that's how far we're going to read. Most passages on, and most, I'm sorry, most sermons that I looked up and read and stuff on this passage, what they do is at the end of the sermon, they do a contrast between the rich people putting money in and the poor widow putting in her two coins. And then the thrust of basically every one of these sermons that I saw was this. Jesus doesn't care how much you give. Jesus cares what percentage you give, right? Something like that. But don't you see how that's just... The scribes and the Pharisees' legalism dressed up in fancy Jesus clothes? That's the same thing. So what I want to do with this text is two things, two keys to this text, I think. The first key is that, the first key is um, 
uh, it's not just about outward behaviors, but the position of the heart, right? So I'm not going to tell you to leave here with certain behaviors to do, but I do want you to leave with a position of your heart. The second thing is we don't want to compare the rich people and the widow. We want to compare the scribes and the widow. I think Luke puts these two texts together for theological reasons, not just for chronological ones. So let's, let's look at these two for a sec. What can we say about these teachers of the law, these pastors, the scribes? What can we say about them? Well, they loved respect and pride. You know, they have pride. I, I, it has to be about me. They always needed the best seats everywhere they went. They're selfish. They abused people at the bottom of society for their own personal gain. They're greedy. They don't care about other people. They're willing to steal. And their whole religion is just for show. That's what we know about these guys, just from what Jesus says here, not even from the other part, parts where he talks about these guys. What can we say for sure about the widow? Well, she had a deep love for God, and she had a commendable trust that God would take care of her one way or another, and that he knew what was best for her life. And as we look at this passage, look deep within your very soul. Which one of those two are you really more like? Are you more generous or selfish? Do you tend to be more proud or more humble? Do you care more about other people or yourself? Let's be honest. Everybody in the entire history of the world has cared more about themselves than other people. That one's an easy one to answer. We all do. Do you sometimes put on faith as a show because you don't want church people to know how you're actually struggling inside? Let's be honest. We're more like the scribes than the widow. The temptation with this text, is to read it and to say to ourselves one of the two things, right? Wow, I'm so glad that I'm like the widow and not like the scribes. I'm so glad I'm one of the good guys. Yeah, okay. The second is, well, maybe I am like the scribes. So I'm going to go home and I'm going to try really hard to be more like the widow. What changes can I make? What five steps can I do after I leave the porch today? Right? But hold the phone, right? Isn't that the exact attitude we're told to avoid? What can I do? What can I change? Me, 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 I, I, I. That's what the scribes did. Here's what you need to do with this text. Reflect on it, look at the scribes, and see yourself in them, right? The most, one of the most important things that you can do to grow in your faith and to grow in your trust of our Lord is to have an actual picture of the sin that's within you. Um, did I put this up here? Yeah, Martin Luther. Okay, this, some of this language is a little funky because it's old. Uh, but look at this. This is from the bondage of the will. Um, at one point, he said, Martin Luther said, if I die, and all that survives of me is the bondage of the will and my children's catechism, I'll be good. Right? He loved this book. He says this, God has assuredly promised his grace to the humble, that is, those who lament and despair of themselves. But no man can be thoroughly humbled until he knows that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, devices, endeavors, will, and works, and depends entirely on the choice, will, and the work of another, namely God alone. For as long as he is persuaded that he himself can do even the least thing towards his salvation, he retains some self-confidence and does not altogether despair of himself, and therefore he is not humbled before God, but presumes that there is or at least hopes or desires that there may be some place, time, and work for him by which 
he may at length attain salvation. This is my favorite part of this, right? I underlined it. But when a man has no doubt that everything depends on the will of God, then he completely despairs of himself. He chooses nothing for himself, but he waits for God to work. Then he has come close to grace. The widow didn't walk up to those trumpets with her two coins, walk up to that trumpet with her two coins in her hand and say, God, you are so lucky to have me on your side and you are so lucky to have my two coins. Throw it in. Here you go. She went up with humility. Right, God, I am a wretched sinner. You are a great Savior. I'm poor in this world, but satisfied in you. That's why she put those coins. Here's my last two coins. I wish I had more to give you. I'd give you more if I had. I, I, you deserve more than I have. You deserve all of me. Because you called me to be your child when I am so wicked and evil. And she threw her two coins in worship. And so this isn't a sermon with three points of application. Here's three steps to give more money to the guitar club thing. I want at least 50% of your income in that box. You know, that's not what we're doing here today. The application of this passage is kind of tough. I guess it's this. Stop convincing yourself that you don't suck. Because you do. Stop convincing yourself that you're not a sinner. And stop telling yourself that you're better than you are. Because when you think you're better than you are, all of a sudden Jesus doesn't really have to be that great of a savior. Uh, The good doctor said this, right? Martin Lloyd-Jones. You will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there's a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all, I love this phrase, we are all on very good terms with ourselves and we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Isn't that so true? We are really good at convincing ourselves that that guy stinks, but I'm pretty great. That's such a terrible attitude. That's not what we want to do, right? We want to go home. We want to fight that instinct. And we want to look at the sin in our lives and just be overwhelmed with despair. Because that's the moment when Jesus shows up and says, here's this grace. And that's the moment that you really understand how amazing this grace is and how much you don't deserve any of it. And then all of a sudden, you look around at your life and you go, oh, I'm kind of like the widow. I'm kind of like these people that Jesus commends in the Gospels. But it's not because you're trying to be like them. It's because you're trying to get a real picture of how much God loves you and how much Christ has done for you. So you're the scribes. That's who you are. You might even be worse. But the beautiful part is this. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's one of the coolest verses in the whole Bible. You're awful. You're the scribes. And Jesus said, you know what? I want him. I want her. My family. Adopted by God the Father. It's such a wonderful thing. And so really all I guess I want you to take away from this sermon is a sense of wow. If you'll pardon my French, when I was a youth pastor, I used to tell the kids, you know, what we're going for here is not learning everything in the Bible. We're going for, what I, okay, this is what I used to call it, the holy crap factor, where you think about God and you think about yourself and you think about his grace and you go, holy crap. <laughs> right? We want to be the kind of people who just over and over and over again 
Just experience that sense of wow as we look at and despair of the sin in our lives. And then we see how much we need him. 